This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. TBR, Tailored Book Recommendations, is now available as a gift for Valentine's Day. Is your favorite Valentine a hard-to-shop-for book lover? Give the gift of TBR, Book Riot's subscription service, offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Choose from plans that allow your loved one to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or year-long subscription, and sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient redeems their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they can even connect their Goodreads account. Then we'll match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations just for them. Gifts start at just $16, so there's an option for every budget. Plus, you can schedule the gift to be delivered to your Valentine's inbox on Valentine's Day. No waiting on shipping delays. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine. So when you treat someone's shelf, you're supporting an indie too. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a Book Riot podcast hosted by me, Sarah Hannah Gomez, and Kelly Jensen. We are recording on Thursday, January 28th, 2021. Hello. Hey. I am very cold. It is cold here in the Midwest. You know, we have had a not bad winter at all. And I'm like knocking on wood, you wouldn't believe, but I'm like huddled <laughs> in a blanket right now podcasting. I'm like this is I think like what everybody assumes a podcast situation looks like and I'm here to <laughs> confirm indeed it is. <laughs> How are you? So I thought this week would be Cuckoo Bananas because of the Youth Media Awards, which we're mm. going to talk about. But instead, mm. it was Cuckoo Bananas, first of all, because I'm in Tucson and it snowed. I saw that. <laughs> yes. And then this GameStop business is just... Oh my goodness. Talk about bananas. I am like, I maybe understand 40% of it. And what mm -hmm. I understand is like the robber barons spent decades making unethical things legal. And then the poors came and turned it on their heads and bankrupted yes. them. Mm -hmm. Right? And then the robber barons were like, is this even legal? <laughs> so yeah. That's been pretty much my takeaway. And... I've been watching a few of my friends on Facebook going back and forth about all of this and just like how incredible it is to watch. And I'm like, you know, I understand like probably about 40% what you said, but I'm really enjoying the commentary from, you know, all of the eat the rich folks who've been like looking forward to this kind of thing <sighs> to happen. Um, right. So it's been fun to watch, you know. <laughs> Man, I should have worn my Eat the Rich shirt today. I have a really great – it has like – instead of a hammer and sickle, it has a sickle and a fork on it. It's great. Oh. <laughs> oh. I am – for anybody who's listening and is like, hasn't Kelly been on the Audis for like a year? The answer is yeah, I realize now. <laughs> I was on the second – round. There's three rounds of Audis judging. So I was on the second round last year, September to December, and then I'm on the final like round where you pick the winners for a different category this time. So I'm back on my like listening to a lot of audiobooks and doing a lot of puzzles. So I'm like blowing through some audiobooks I've been meaning to listen to, which is great. Like this category, I didn't anticipate that would happen, but it's been so good. And I've also done a lot of puzzles because I'm trying to like, like that's the only way I can listen and really focus anymore is like having something to do with my hands. Yeah, I definitely, I think that's why I do so many of my audiobooks while I'm driving or taking mm -hmm. walks or like baking. Yeah. But yeah, no, talking to you, I mean, we've talked a lot to each other for years, but now like talking to you with my voice every two weeks, I definitely have been like, 
much more interested in doing puzzles. And I have to go to the used <laughs> bookstore this weekend to bring oh, a yeah. bunch of stuff over. And I was like, they always have puzzles. Yes. I should just buy a couple and then I'll do even more audiobooks. Like, if you're okay with pieces potentially being missing, um, like, I know I am. I don't care. And pieces of my puzzles, brand new ones, go missing because I have animals all the time. Used bookstores are great, as is, like, Goodwill. You can get them for, like, nothing. You know, then if you decide you don't like it, you also don't have to feel bad about returning it to Goodwill for somebody else to do the same thing. That's very true. Yeah, I don't have animals around, but I do often have my sister's children around, which is Mm -hmm. sort of similar. So Yeah. I mean, they get into things. They do. They do. Mostly they just, yeah, I think they would want to do them with me and then be like, this isn't Peppa Pig or a dinosaur. (laughs) I mean, unless I were to get a Peppa Pig or dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they might just be bored and want it out of the way. But no, definitely (laughs) I've been thinking about puzzles. And in the meantime, it's amazing. I have not flown through so many books, but also so like deeply and easily through books in years. And I have just been like sitting and reading and like not caring about, you know, my Twitter notifications Mm -hmm. and like... Yeah, it is. It really, I think, has been years since I could regularly just sit down and not want to do anything else but read versus I really want to want to read, but I also want to do these 10 other things. And yeah, it's just been really enjoyable to just read. I've been having the same experience and it's been wonderful. Like part of it is because like we're still not going out and doing anything. So weekends now that it's so cold or snowy, like it's winter. We're not doing anything. We make no plans. It's like, I don't feel bad if I spend all day just reading a book and then alternating with listening to an audiobook and working on a puzzle. Like, it feels like such a good day to me now in ways that I think even a year ago, not that it was a bad day, but I would feel like I didn't do anything when in fact, like, I did a whole lot. I did a lot of reading and that felt so good just to immerse myself in the act of reading without worrying about anything else, you know? Yeah, no, it's been amazing. And I definitely am like, I am doing it somewhat to my own detriment because I do have other (laughs) stuff to do. But it's such a like psychological relief and release that I'm like, if this means that I'm a week behind on grading at the beginning of the semester, sorry, students, I this is, this is better for my sanity, ultimately, Mm -hmm. and for myself as your teacher than not doing it. So sure. Yeah, (laughs) you know, Yeah. And that's, it's like, I think of things I could be doing. And I'm like, you know, I could do that during the week, though. Because I don't know if you're this way. But for some reason, when my workday's done, I feel like I can't do anything at night. It's like, I'm not allowed to do anything at night. Or (laughs) I I don't know, like, I don't feel like I have enough time. And um, so having a whole day where I'm like, I could put that off until the week, you know, when I'm trying to figure out what to do between five and six or six and seven, you know, or seven and eight. I'd rather just spend my entire Saturday reading a YA book or two. That's, I cannot identify with that. There's no such thing <laughs> as a week. The only reason I know what day of the week it is, is because my sister's kids are either at the house or not at the house, or I'm teaching or mm. I'm not. But yeah, no, grad school life means there's no yeah. such thing as standard work hours. But I understand what you're saying. I just don't personally experience it. (laughs) On a technical level, yeah. (laughs) I get it. But that sounds nice. And someday, maybe I will know what that's like. I joined a new dating app and it said, what's your job? And my answer was just one job in this economy. And I was like, (laughs) also just, (laughs) what? (laughs) Real talk, yeah. Shall we uh, hit that first sponsor and then talk about the YMAs? Because there is a lot we can talk about. There is. Today's sponsor is Flatiron Books, publisher of the Enchanté duology by Gita Trelace. The Enchanté duology by Gita Trelace follows an orphaned girl in Paris who utilizes dark magic to survive. In All That Glitters, originally published as Enchanté, Camille Durban gambled everything she had to keep herself and her sister safe. But as the people of Paris starve and mobs riot, safety may no longer be possible. In the highly anticipated sequel, Everything That Burns, allegiances shift, violence erupts, and the answers Camille seeks set her on a perilous path, one that may cost her the boy she loves 
even her life. Dun, dun, dun. That was like a lot of alliteration and <laughs> fun stuff to say. <laughs> that sounds great. I remember seeing it when it was on Chante. And now that I see the title of the second book, I'm like, cool, that makes sense that you would rename it. So thank you mm-hmm. to Flatiron Books for sponsoring today. <laughs> and as we learned in a bit of research that you won't hear on the podcast, this is a mixed race author and we didn't know that. I always love finding another mixie. We're great. I like it. I don't know. We're awesome. <laughs> it's always good to know because sometimes you simply don't. And as a reader, like finding that out just sometimes it's like, ooh, you know, that's really cool. I want to know more about them and their experiences. And then it adds too to what they bring to their writing. And it's good to know for own voices. Exactly. It's funny. This week, actually, I was reading talk about Cuckoo Bananas. Um, I was reading about the movie Passing based on the book. And so I've been really excited about the movie and like all movies this past decade slash calendar year, things, you know, who knows when they're going to get released. And I read an article that was like, you know, this director, um, Rebecca Hall was great, but the producers, because they were worried about like own voices and diversity and stuff, didn't know if she was the right person to direct a movie about black women who pass and deal with colorism and all that. And she was like, actually, my mom's black. I just pass. And they were like, boom. (laughs) And yeah, now I just want to read everything she has to say. And I don't know if we're going to be allowed to like, I don't know if like Sundance, you can just like drop in on a Zoom with the director. Oh, I don't know. You know, it seems like that would be a great thing to do now that we're all, you know, not in person. But right, right. I so want to learn more stuff about her now. (laughs) And it's funny, too, because, you know, I was talking to fellow of colors and I was like, she always looked vaguely, you know, ethnic and I never wanted to make (laughs) assumptions. But we totally do. When we're in a sea of white people, I think all of us secretly are like, that one, that I can maybe hang with that one. <laughs> like, maybe she's ethnic. I don't know. Like, which is like, you know, a thing you don't want to admit to people who don't understand the difference between like in group and, you know, out of group things. But I think it's totally a thing that in the in group, we're like, you look like another one of not them, but more like me. (laughs) (laughs) So super excited for passing the movie. I haven't read the book in a while, so maybe I'll reread it. But Nella Larson passing. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think that's Nella Larson. But thank you. You confirmed for me. (laughs) I was like, I was correct on that. Well, no, for a second, I was like, Nora. Nora's not right. Nella. No, Nella. Let's talk about everybody's favorite time of year, award season, and specifically the American Library Association Youth Media Awards, which were presented on Monday of this week. So a week and a couple days prior to when you'll listen to this episode. And chances are you probably heard about some of the big books by now, some of the big awards, but we're going to talk about those as well as some of the awards that don't get quite the same level of celebration that they should. Yes, I'm really glad, too, that they've started announcing some of the roundtables and, like, adjacent organizations. Mm -hmm. I know in the past, some of the reason they didn't announce it was, like, administrative reasons because – you know, it was Elsk and Yalsa who were presenting them and they were like, we don't, you know, own these other groups. We are not administering their awards. So it's not really our business in a way. And I, I respect that. And I respect the groups not wanting to like give up control. But I think for the audience, it was a good choice for them to be like, but we're all celebrating books for youth. So maybe yes. we should like share the spotlight, even if logistically and administratively, we're not sharing as much. I agree with that. And another one that I'm going to talk about this one later in this conversation, but the Alex Awards for a long time weren't announced at the awards either. They were on a just screenshot before the event began, you know, just a list of them. So it's like you didn't even get the chance to celebrate them because they were just like presented to you. And I think the Alex Awards are so cool, which... I will get to. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, no, there are a bunch of books that I either read or wanted to read. And I know one of the books that you're going to talk about because I bought it under a recommendation and haven't read it yet because I had my (laughs) own award committee (laughs) to worry about. But I'm still kind of bothered for many 
reasons that there's no Alex Award seal. Mm, mm-hmm. And I totally, like, I can make guesses about a lot of the reasons, such as literary classism, so to speak, as mm-hmm. far as, like, oh, heaven forbid I be, you know, looked at as teen-friendly. But I would, I would hope that an author would be really honored that someone thinks that their book deserves a wider audience. The mm-hmm. Alex Awards, you know, are adult books that teens will like. So... Yeah, I wish more publishers at least wanted to, you know, put that on the paperback release, you know, like also a winner of the Alex Award. But it'd be cool if there were a seal just because seals are fun. But I I can think of the reasons why there isn't one and why people don't always put that information on the book. But I'm mm-hmm. mad about it anyway. <laughs> I was an administrative assistant on the Alex Awards many, many years ago. And so I didn't have a voice in it. I was pretty much the person who coordinated the like administrative side of things. So I sat in on the conversations and got to hear them and the discussions, which was awesome. Like it was really eye opening to hear how people on these award committees and it's again, it's an award committee. So all these discussions are a little bit more closed to the public than um, like the best books list might be. And I know that the authors who received it that year, most of them were so stoked. And I think that they are like, I think they get like the real value of being seen as a book that really appeals to a wide range of readers. That makes me happy. I'm really glad. I'm still, you know, traumatized from my creative writing class in college where he was like, the TA was like, well, you almost veered YA, but like you you managed Oof. to to rein it in and I was like, "Ooh. Uh, okay. Ugh. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, buddy." <laughs> like I know you meant it as a genuine compliment that you thought it was a good story. I'm glad. I'm proud of this story, but like yeah. <laughs> So let's shall we start with like the big one and then work our way through some of the other awards just talking like thoughts, feelings. Yeah. Let's do it. So the Prince Award is the big literary award for YA. And I always find the conversations about the Prince fascinating um, afterward because people do not understand the purpose of this award. This is not about appeal to readers. This is about strict literary merit. So this is like the best written book published for young adults in a given year. And um, not all the awards are that way, but this one is. And this year there was so much conversation because the winner, which skews young, people were saying that their high schoolers won't read it because it's too young. And (laughs) I kept thinking like, well, nobody cares. Like that's not the point of it. Um, the, The winner was Daniel Neary's Everything Sad is Untrue. And I mean, I think the target audience is like 12, 13. So it's that younger YA, but like, it's okay if your high schoolers don't want to read it because that's not the point of the award. Point of the award is like, this was the most literary, well-written, compelling book of the year published for young adults. And I think too, it's interesting that that's been the the comment popping up. Um, And I saw it pop up for a couple of the other Prince honor books too that this list skewed kind of young at the same time you see people who talk all the time about how YA books like are too too old like they lean too hard on like 17 18 year olds it's like what balance do you want (laughs) (laughs) I love that Dragon Hoops got a nod as a graphic memoir and then Apple skin to the core was included as a memoir full stop like it was really interesting to see the range of titles on this list and also to see the number of the titles that crossed over into the National Book Award list. Like, in a lot of ways, I think it tells you how strong these particular titles were, but in other ways, it feels a little bit limiting. And I don't mean that as a knock on the committee, but given how challenging 2020 was, it was surprising not to see a wider range of books that hadn't already been sort of regarded as among the best of the year. Obviously, you can't award them all, but the list didn't necessarily feel entirely unique, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it was definitely awesome. I believe the entire slate is authors of color, but... <gasps> You're right. Was, yeah, yeah. Oh my is awesome. God, is that even allowed? <laughs> well, it happened. So <laughs> that was awesome. Although I will say 
it was heavier on the male side than female side um, for the author's identity, which, you know, in a, a list of five, like that's going to, you're going to go one way or the other if you're trying to get half and half or like looking for that half and half. But it was just interesting to see, to see what that like breakdown was of books. You could argue that it is exactly half and half because Jean's book has color by Lark Pien. Yeah, there you go. You could. So, you know, if we really want to be like binary obsessed slash equity obsessed, then. It nailed it. Yeah. Color (laughs) is, I think, one thing about introducing people to graphic novels that they're often not ready for is you know, like we're used to this is an author of a book and maybe this mm-hmm. is an illustrator, but there's often like the author, the artist, the colorist, the inker, mm-hmm. and they all get hopefully credit mm-hmm. on the title page, maybe not on the cover, but it really goes to show like how complex a graphic novel is that yes. you hire someone specifically to like make the words look good in a, the most literal sense possible, like just make them look like clear, readable, but maybe with a sort of like some kind of font that's outside of the standard because it gives you this feeling or whatever. Like there is so much credited work in graphic novels. And I wish we saw more of that in regular novels as far as making it more visible who did the cover, who edited it. Mm -hmm. Because there are some publishers (laughs) that do that and there might be in the copyright thing like photo by. Ugh, yeah. It is a pain to find that information if you don't have the book in front of you and slash know where to look in the book for that information. And um, it's fascinating. Like the more that I've thought about book covers and research book covers, just it's not just the designer. It's not just the artist. But they're, again, colorists are working on this. There are people who are their specialty is lettering and they can be involved in the process as well. Like the whole thing is so complex. and. Being able to find that credit more readily, I think, is is a really good point you bring up. Yeah, this is why I like Fiewell and Friends, because at the end of every book, they go, the friends who were responsible for this book, and they go through like font, cover design, mm. production, you know, like, oh, I love it. Everyone should do a credits section the way they do. <laughs> yeah. And it's also cool. I, I find it interesting to see who the editors are, because a lot of times... If you like an editor's book, like a book they worked on, chances are you'll like other books that they've worked on. Like it's a really useful tool for readers to discover more books to read. Oh, definitely. And I can tell too. Like if I look at the publisher and then I read a book, I'm like, I would bet you anything that so-and-so was the editor. And I am usually not wrong. And that's why <laughs> you should also read the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can usually find it in the acknowledgments. But again, like that ending page of complete credits would be really cool in all books. I like how much we swayed off of the YMAs here. Let's <laughs> it's totally related. Right. Oh yeah. And then for people who aren't as familiar, I guess usually I describe the prince as the newberry for YA and then mm-hmm. people tend to understand that it's like the highest achievement in the land, so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on the prince this year? I So I'm on a YA book award committee this year, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. So I've also been reading a lot of these these books. And if I haven't, then they're like, you know, on my stack still to be read for this. I also really love that it's not all big five publishers on this mm-hmm. list. Two of them are from Arthur A. Levine's new publisher that he started when he left Scholastic. And I just... I am really glad that small presses are getting more recognition. So that made me really happy as well. The only run I've read so far is Dragon Hoops, but Mm -hmm. the other ones are on my list for award because we haven't actually picked our finalists yet. They might be announced by the time this episode airs, but today (laughs) they are not named. So, Did you want to pick the next category to talk about? Sure. So I actually, it was kind of surprising this year, especially considering I'm on an award committee, but just in general, because I consider myself well read, how many of this year's awards were books I was not familiar with that I'd maybe heard of, but not read. Like, I feel very Mm -hmm. 
behind. It was kind of strange. <laughs> but I was really excited to see a couple books that kind of crossed over because they're sort of upper middle grade or lower YA. So, you know, multiple committees looked at them. I loved All 13 by Christina Suntornbat. It is an amazingly researched story about the Thai boys soccer team that were stuck in a cave mm-hmm. for days and days and divers had to go get them. Oh, it was fascinating. And you can see how it would be really fun to write a novel about that because then you can get into like the adventure of being in a cave or you can <laughs> add, you know, monsters or something. But, you know, she was writing it and was like, I have to rely on, you know, interviews and stuff with the people involved, but also it's a lot about the people who banded together to rescue them and just how complicated logistically, politically, economically it is to to figure that out. And it was one of those where I was like, oh, yeah, so this is why things like the National Guard are important, like, because these are people mm-hmm. who actually are, like, well-trained, and you can call them in and be like, you know about caves. I'm just a person who lives near this cave. Like, can you help me figure out, you know, how to safely dive and rescue these kids? So it is so good, so well-researched. The photography is amazing. Her storytelling is great. Like, oh, highly recommend All 13 by Christina Sunturnbot. And her middle grade novel got some nods in the awards, too. And it is Les Mis inspired, which <laughs> so if you like middle grade, definitely also read A Wish in the Dark. It's awesome. <laughs> her book, All 13, was one of the nonfiction finalists, which is something that fascinating me this year. I guess the best way to put it is I was a little disappointed by the best nonfiction title slate this year. Um, it was really white, not completely white, but really white. And it was surprising that an award that does take into account appeal. So this is not the same as The Prince in that who it appeals to um, doesn't have a bearing on the award. This one does. And it was so surprising not to see any books about anti-racism or history of racism, anything like that, when we had such a wealth of them this year, show up on this list. It felt like a really big missed opportunity for 2020. But the winner of that category was the Charles Lindbergh book by Candace Fleming, which I know I've talked about on the podcast a couple times. And super solid book. I really enjoyed it. And just as a whole, it was really interesting to see the choices that were and were not made on that particular committee. Yeah, I have decided that Charles Lindbergh book is your hot dog girl. (laughs) But yeah, no, and then all 13 is on the excellence in nonfiction list from Yalsa and in the Cybert, which is excellence in nonfiction for kids. And both of her books are Newbery honors. So yeah, I love that. Yeah, people really recognized that it has broad appeal. Um, But I did notice that, yeah, in general, the nonfiction list for Yalsa was not as exciting as I have found it in the past. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it is, I mean, and it's no fault of the books on the list. Like, I'm sure they are great, but I don't know if it was representative of just what 2020 was in YA nonfiction. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Like, it's good, but... Yeah, just it's surprising what's absent. And, you know, you can only have five books on that list. That and the Morris Award are, like, very strict about numbers. Mm -hmm. So part of it is just, like, there were certainly more than five books that the committee liked. Like, (laughs) I can – I am very certain of that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's not the most exciting list as far as, like, topics, too. I feel like just in the past, there have been, you know, there was Go by Chip Kidd a few years ago, mm-hmm. and there were just more subjects represented in past years than this year, I think. They do do, and I'll link this in the show notes, they call them vetted lists. So these are titles that did not win the award or an honor, but that the committee read and thought were worth noting. So that particular list I thought was way better and way more representative of the best of nonfiction this year. So if you felt similarly, maybe that list will make you feel like you read, (laughs) you know, some of the some of the best of the year and um, that those titles still sort of get recognition for achievement in 2020. Definitely. Another award I really like um, that I was on the committee for, it was my first ever award committee. So I was on it for the 2014 award. And that's the Morris Award. And this one has 
very strict guidelines. It is a debut book published by a first-time author writing for teens. So if you wrote a math textbook, you are not eligible for mm-hmm. this award. If you have published a poetry book for adults, you are not eligible for this award. If your book is kind of Alex Award-worthy, you are not eligible for this award. So it has very strict guidelines, which is helpful for the committee because it means you can knock a lot of books off your list and then your pool is more manageable (laughs) as far as Mm -hmm. reading. But definitely having been on that committee, I know that even publishers don't fully understand all of the eligibility requirements because I certainly got books in the mail where I was like, this is awesome. I can't actually consider it, but well done. (laughs) But this year's list, I've read two of them and then others have been on my list. So or maybe I've read one of them. But I am always excited to see debut authors. I'm glad we have an award just for them. Mm -hmm. It is sort of Prince-like as far as, you know, it's really supposed to be primarily quality in scare quotes, but also slightly appeal. The one I've read is Woven in Moonlight by Isabel Ibanez. And oh, I loved it so, so much. I don't love high fantasy, as you slash most of our listeners know. (laughs) And this one has parallels, some of which are problematic to Bolivian history. Um, But I think that's partly just because Latin American history in general is problematic through no fault of Latin Americans, but through the fault of (laughs) colonialism and imperialism. So I had to look it up, actually, to kind of figure out what I was, whether what I had an inkling of what was happening was, you know, correct in my very low understanding and knowledge base. But I do think it's a pretty amazing story about like a decoy queen and questions about, you know, power, who was here first, who's the best person to rule, like who's the best ethnic group to be in charge of things. Like it's super complicated. I think it would be easy to write off as like, it's fantasy and there's a princess. And first of all, there's nothing wrong with fantasy and princesses, but also this one has a lot of really complex political stuff to unpack. So Woven in Moonlight, definitely a good read if you're in in the mood to like grapple with things. I love the mix of serious and fun books that showed up on the Stonewall this year. So seeing You Should See Me in a Crown next to Felix Ever After next to Darius the Great Deserves Better was such a fabulous cross-section of queer YA in 2020. Like, I don't think there could be a better slate of queer YA that sort of represents what 2020 looked like in that category of, of books because they they show as much depth and range as you can imagine, you know, when you're limited to three books. And that's that's an award I love looking at every year. And just, oh, they nailed that one. They did. I wish they would separate out children's and YA. I know the Lambdas finally decided that there were enough queer kids and YA mm-hmm. books that they could separate it. And I was like, what a wonderful problem to have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm not sorry for you at all. And the Stonewall <laughs> still combines it. But yeah, one of their other honor books, Beetle and the Hollowbones, is a graphic novel. And I think that's great to see with I mean, I think in general, graphic novels have been pretty queer friendly, especially in the adult world. Mm -hmm. But queer middle grade is still a place where people are like, think of the children, let me clutch my pearls, Uh, (laughs) even though like kids are queer. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I was really, really excited to see that there was a graphic novel, too. I um, had alluded to the Alex Awards being my favorites and... Again, I'm really glad they're getting more recognition during the announcements rather than just prior to them. And these are, for readers who aren't familiar, adult books published for adults that have great teen appeal. And I've read a few of them this year, which were great. I loved The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, who I think in general is a really great crossover horror author. Ellie Broch's new comic, Solutions and Other Problems, was great. You know, I read an uh, advanced reader copy of this one that had this weird ableism moment in it, and I'm really hopeful that that did not make it in the final edition. Um, Haven't seen anybody else bring it up, really, so it's possible it didn't make it in there, but um, heads up on that just in case it did slip through somehow. And then 
the one that I think you alluded to earlier, which is We Ride Upon Sticks by Quan Berry, which I just loved. Yeah. The moment I finished it, I was like, this is an Alex book. This is a book that teens will love. And it's funny and weird, but like in that perfect blend of funny and weird. And then a couple of the books that are catching my eye from that list are The Kids Are Gonna Ask, which is about two siblings who develop a podcast to find their father. Plain Bad Heroines, which I've had sitting in my stack for a long time. And we already know Emily M. Danforth published Cameron Post and has been a real teen-friendly writer for a long time. And then Durf Backdurf's Kent State, which I loved, loved, loved his book on Jeffrey Dahmer called My Friend Dahmer, which was also an Alex Award winner a few years ago and turned into a film. It was amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw it, but it was turned into a film that was also really good. And um, so I'm super curious how he took on Kent State. Like, I, this book is at my library and it's very big, like physically large. So that's the only thing that's kept me from checking it out is I want to have time to like sit down with a big, like cumbersome book. But yeah, I every year I see that list and I get so excited to discover new reads on it. Yeah. And there were a few, I think three authors who have been YA or middle grade or both Mm -hmm. authors as well, which I like. Just I like when authors don't get pigeonholed. So seeing Rebecca Roanhorse and Emily M. Danforth and Tochi Onyabuchi, I was like, great. Like now maybe, you know, these books are doing well. So maybe adults will be like, maybe I don't have to judge YA and pick up their (laughs) other stuff or yeah. So I think and that also speaks to how like you know, getting teens to transition into adult books, like can be helped by authors they already know and love and kind of following those authors into to older books. So yeah, I'm super excited about that list. I have a few of them as audiobooks, so I might pick some of them up that way. Yes. Do you want to hit on another category or two before we move on? Because I'm looking at the time I'm like, oh, we could probably spend two hours just talking about these lists. We could. <laughs> quick shout out to the batchelder award which Mm -hmm. because we were talking about translated ya which pretty much always goes to a picture book because those are the books most commonly you know purchased and translated in the u.s but i think the coolest thing about it is that is an award given to the publisher not the author not the illustrator Mm. and it is a really good kind of screw you or well done the fact that it's given to the publisher because it's a like, see, we do want this. Mm-hmm. So just a little shout out for people to always check those, although there tends <laughs> to not be a lot of YA. Um, oh, my God, we could talk about so much stuff. Do you want to talk about the Edwards Award? That's another committee I've been yeah. on in the past. It's yeah. ugh, Lifetime Achievement for YA Writers, which is just a wonderful, it's a wonderful category. And the eligibility has to be, you can only name, you don't have to name all of their books. You can name whichever books you think are really the standouts, mm-hmm. but they can't be newer than five years published so that you can kind of prove that they have like a lasting, you know, impact on people. So, oh, it's such a cool award. What did you think about the winner? I think people sleep on the Margaret Edwards Award and the books that are honored by that particular author. And this year's winner is Kekla Magoon, who has been doing this work for so, so long. And I have been a big fan of her work for a long time. And to see it honored this way is so great. So because these this focuses on a handful of books, we've got um, three titles of distinction here, How It Went Down, which is a Black Lives Matter novel told in multiple points of view that came out like six or seven years ago. It's been out for a long time. The Rock and the River, which is about the Black Panthers in 1968 Chicago, and then Fire in the Streets, which is a companion to The Rock and the River. And I love that it's just, it's very like Black Lives stories, contemporary as well as historical. And I've seen so many people ask about like Black Panther inspired novels, you know, like the historical Black Panthers. And I'm always like, Hecla Magoon's been doing it. Like, pick up her books. They're there. And so I hope this helps more people find those stories that they've been so desperately wanting to read. 
Yeah. And they also, I think the newest of her books that they cited was X, a novel that she Mm -hmm. co-wrote with Ilyasa Shabazz. So it's about Malcolm X and it's one of those fictionalized biographies, which those can either like bother the crap out of me or impress the crap out of me, but there seems to be no in between, just depending on how it's handled. But I believe Ilyasa Shabazz is his daughter. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So... You know, I always like when there's someone kind of co-signing, someone who's, you know, close to the subject and believes that their co-writer is, you know, handling it well and respectfully. So, yeah, I really – oh, she's so – she's so great. Kekla is just mm-hmm. so great. Like, I'm so glad that she's being recognized. I agree. Like, that was such a nice – like, when I saw the name in the books, I was like, that's just right. Like, you know, right. in general, it's just right. Like, I mean, for what the award is, but also in terms of just being a contemporary author whose work deserves more attention for what it has been for years and years. Like, they nailed it. Absolutely. And I think that's one nice thing about that award and the kind of corresponding one for ALSK, the Children's Literature Legacy Award, is it takes into account both like hoity-toity literary things, but also appeal, which I think is you know what the best literature should be, which is like high quality, but also that draws people in. So it's nice that you get to recognize people who don't write in a vacuum, who write well, but also write mm-hmm. for real people. So a great award. I was going to highlight two more real quick. Um, this was the first year that the Pure Bell Prey gave an award for YA books, and it was such a killer roster. So Shamile Sayed Mendez's Furia won, and then the honors were Never Look Back by Lilian Rivera and We Are Not From Here by Jenny Torres Sanchez. Like, how great that they expanded that award, and there are three titles that could be included, and that is not the full range of books that could have been included like just thinking about how much more expansive the YA world is when it comes to telling stories that are of a wide range of experiences like it gets exciting to think about that and just how far things have come in five years let alone 10 years 15 years and then the other one I wanted to touch on real quick is the Sydney Taylor Award which is books about the Jewish experience and I adore that they picked Tyler Feeder's Dancing at the Pity Party. It's a graphic memoir about Tyler's mother dying of cancer when she was young. And so much of the book is about Jewish grieving traditions and like stuff that as somebody who is not Jewish, I know very little about. But reading it and then seeing it on the page was so cool. Just an incredible graphic novel. Graphic memoir, I should say. It's it's a true story. It's not a not a novelization. Yes. I love that their lists get longer, it seems, every year. Like their honor lists. Yes. Um well they call it the silver medalist, but yeah, I like that that paragraph gets thicker and thicker every year. Um and that it's not all the Holocaust because <laughs> we're oh, Exactly. Not that we're tired of it in a we need to put it away, but like we're tired of it. Let's also write some other stories. Right. They're they're important books and they have real value, but also like contemporary Jewish stories are also important and like super relevant. So yeah, that was just a cool one to see actually take home the award. Yes, agree. Anything else you want to say about the awards before we hit our second sponsor and dive into our very different second topic? I could say like 10 million things, but I'm so excited for our next topic that, yes, <laughs> let's let's talk about our sponsor and then our other topic. Cool. So our second sponsor is Cirque du Freak, the manga, volume one from Yen Press. So Darren Shan was an average kid until destiny brought him to the Cirque du Freak. Now Darren's immersed in a shadowy world inhabited by vampires, werewolves, and strange creatures of the likes of which he's never imagined, and his life will never be the same. Discover the manga adaptation of the internationally acclaimed author Darren Shan's Cirque du Freak in a new, oversized, deluxe, omnibus format. And that is Cirque du Freak, the manga, volume one from Yen Press. Those books never stayed on my shelf at the library, ever. Oh, yeah. I didn't... I remember hearing about it, but I don't think I knew that it was going to be adapted. And I mean, we talked about that last episode or two episodes ago, maybe, um, about how much fun it is when you see books kind of being revisited in different forms. Mm -hmm. So very exciting. 
So do you want to introduce this topic since this one was your idea and so much fun? Yes. Um, so we all know those memes that go around that kind of started with like your, I'm going to say what it was, which is your stripper name. <laughs> There's all kinds of problematic, like anti-sex worker feelings there. Mm-hmm. But just to orient people, you probably for the first time saw it as a your stripper name is and it's, you know, your birth month. You get a word from that. You get a word from like whatever the second letter in your name is, blah, blah, blah. And then you come up with this fun name. And there are a lot of those for book titles, so I thought it would be fun to make up a bunch of book titles and talk about what those books should be about or what books like could just be <laughs> retitled that very easily. <laughs> this was so fun, and we will link to all of these little quizzes in the show notes so you can take them and discover your title and like write your own <laughs> whatever <laughs> title <laughs> We could call this episode Manuscript Wishlist the way agents do. It's just don't yes. send it to us because we're not agents. <laughs> right, right. Do you want to kick it off? Yes. So Tiffany Schmidt's new book came out. And so she made like a Sherlockian um, mm-hmm. generator that mine, whatever things, you know, I had to choose like my birth month and whatnot, ended up the person with deadly lettuce. And I was like, <laughs> food poisoning. I got food poisoning <laughs> from Greens Red once. And then I remembered that time that Fresh Express had to recall all their salad bags because someone found a bat in one of them, (laughs) which I was like, that poor bat. But, you know, until someone wants to write about the romaine lettuce recall, I figured they could maybe read Breath by Donna Jo Napoli, which is another kind of, um, since we've been talking about it, middle grade, younger YA crossover book um, that'll probably appeal to a lot of middle schoolers. It's a take on the Pied Piper of Hamelin, but instead of having the townsfolk, you know, kind of go nutso because of some magical whatever or magical rats, it basically deals with, you know, medieval actual things, like when historians look at reasons people died and, you know, kind of make these guesses that it supposes that ergot poisoning was the reason that people went cuckoo bananas back then. Because, mm. you know, no one drank water. Everyone just drank, like, wine and beer all the time, even <laughs> even the, ba- the babies. So in this book, there's one boy who is not going cuckoo bananas. And it's because a lot of that stuff makes him feel sick. So he doesn't eat or drink it. So he's the one who kind of sees everything going down. And meanwhile, everyone thinks that he's the weirdo because he has what is most likely cystic fibrosis, but you know, definitely would not have been named that back then. So mm-hmm. he is kind of looked down on as the person with a disability, but he's the only one not going nutso because he naturally avoids the stuff that's causing all of that. So for a real book, Breath by Donna Jo Napoli, but then someone please write about a romaine recall or read about Typhoid Mary. That's also very food poisoning related. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to understand, though, uh, when romaine recalls happen, it is tragedy in the homes of anybody who owns a rabbit because romaine is their favorite and then you can't get it and you can't really explain that well to uh, a rabbit. So, you know, real real life consequences there beyond food poisoning as well. I thought you were going to say to anyone whose only idea of vegetables is Caesar salad, so... (laughs) (laughs) I do know those people who are like, I don't really eat vegetables. I eat lettuce, though. I like Caesar salad. And I'm like, so do I. But that's tragic. So from that same little title generator, mine was the person with blue noodles. I thought this was a mystery set in either a restaurant or one of those specialty food shop. So like, you know, sometimes if you go to a town that specializes in tourism, they have like a foodie place where you can get like special kinds of sauce and seasonings and noodles. Anyway, this mystery includes a meat cute as well as a girl who has curly blue hair. And yes, there are noodles involved in it. I have curly hair and I've been wanting to dye it blue since 2004 when Eternal Sunshine (laughs) of the Spotless Mind came out and I still haven't gotten up the courage to do it. But, you know, maybe I can do that and make gluten-free noodles and then you can write about my life. (laughs) (laughs) What's your next one? So I did one that ended up with the title Dating, Loyalty, and Other Crimes. And I was like, pass. I don't do romance in my YA. I like romance novels. I some 
Romance in my YA is not something that I go for. But on a generator for your adventure book title, I ended up with The Friendliest Chef in the Mansion. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, it seems like that would be a title where like friendliest is actually a euphemism for the opposite. And then mm. I went with food poisoning again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I did learn there is a ton of like food and chef and cooking related manga series. Mm -hmm. And it's over overwhelming to think about like even starting a manga because there's just so much. And, you know, when you find it, they're already on volume 72. But mm -hmm. Food Wars by Yuto Tsukuda sounds awesome. And then I also thought of Yes Chef by Marcus Samuelson, who people will know probably from Chopped or other food shows. I read it when it first came out for adults. And then when they issued a Young Readers edition, it was co-authored by Veronica Chambers, who is an amazing writer. So I'm going to assume that the YA version is fantastic as well. He's a really cool guy. I say that not knowing him, but knowing him as a judge on Chopped. And he has an interesting life. He was adopted from Ethiopia by Swedish parents. So he grew up in Sweden and now he lives in Harlem. So his food, which I have not tasted firsthand because television kind of incorporates like very American flavors, Swedish flavors, Ethiopian flavors. And I love Ethiopian food. So it is a great book. Highly recommend. Yes, Chef by Marcus Samuelson. So I took those same two title generators. And uh, the first one I came up with was Math and Other Illusions. And I say with no doubt, this is 5 million percent a YA rom-com. And there have been some really similarly titled books in YA the last few years. I immediately thought of the debut that just came out called The Quantum Weirdness of the Almost Kiss by Amy Noel Parks. And then I'm going to link to a post I did a couple years ago where the titles were all like mathematical equations, which was really fascinating to see. So math and other illusions would fit right in with that. And then my adventure title, I loved this so much. The adventure title was The Classiest Chicken in the Coffee Shop. And <laughs> yeah. It immediately made me think of the forthcoming book called Sunny Song Will Never Be Famous by Suzanne Park. It's out in June. And it's a story about a girl who accidentally goes viral and her parents ship her off to Iowa for a tech-free summer. And the front cover of it features a chicken. So there is sort of that natural connection there. But I suspect my classiest chicken book would be something similar to that. Like imagine you live in the farm town and, you know, you pick up the name chicken and like you're the classiest chicken in the coffee shop, you know, for whatever reason. <laughs> that was a fun one. Uh, speaking of chickens, um, not at all, <laughs> but animals. I did another Sherlock title generator from a different source and ended up with the trial of the judgmental oyster. Oh, <laughs> I was like, this would be so good if it were something ridiculous like Marcel the Shell with shoes on. Um, mm -hmm. Just like an oyster who sits there being like, mm, mm, I'm judging people. So I am not the person to write that kind of humor at all. But if someone else does, like, I will pick that up so fast. And then I was thinking of different ways to play with, you know, that language. And I thought, well, trials are in court, but also there's like trials and tribulation. So I was like, you know, it would work because I like talking about this author as much as I can is The Downstairs Girl by Stacey mm -hmm. Lee, because we have a main character who's definitely going through some stuff because you need that in a book, but also because she is a Chinese American in the South where she's surrounded by white people. And they don't take kindly to outsiders. And she's a bit of a judgmental oyster because she starts an anonymous advice column for the newspaper and snarks her way through it, but also like gives some good advice and lots of feminist advice, like, you know, kind of to the effect of like, maybe your husband is threatened by you and you should just go on and do what you want to do. Oh, it's such a good book. Stacey Lee is a brilliant researcher and writer. So until someone writes about Marcel Deschel with shoes on and his friend, the judgmental oyster, I would go with The Downstairs Girl by <laughs> Stacey Lee. <laughs> I am going to talk about my atmospheric title was the little generator. And I came up with Within the Beautiful Deep, which immediately made me think of Shay Earnshaw's The Wicked Deep, which is this very atmospheric book about witches and curses. 
I think, though, Within the Beautiful Deep is a book about mermaid sisters who use their magic to cause chaos on the coastal town near where they reside just for fun. And then as I was thinking about that, I was like, wait a minute. Maybe it's a teen mermaid who realizes she was bestowed with this useless magic on her 16th birthday, as opposed to something like a magical singing voice or swimming skills or whatever it is that mermaids get that make them as magical as they are. Like, the only thing she can do is, like, she sneezes and, you know, books fall off somebody's shelf on the coastal town or, like, these little things that people think are ghosts, but it's actually this poor teenage girl who just, like pick the wrong you know wrong straw at age 16 <laughs> and it's just like it's just a funny story as opposed to like super atmospheric that sounds a lot like justine larbalestie's yes. how to ditch your fairy yes. where everyone has like a fairy with one gift and the main <laughs> character her fairy is a parking fairy so she yes. always gets good parking spots but I think it's like she can't drive, and so she never knows who her like true friends are because a lot of people are just like, mm, I'm really bad at parallel parking, and I can never find a space. So do you want to come with me to the movie? <laughs> <laughs> so, but yes, we could also do this all day. So one more each, so that yeah. people don't get tired of us is probably <laughs> a good plan. But but again, we'll link to these because I know sometimes during the workday you're like, you know. I need to come up with a story and <laughs> we'll help you out. So I'm going to go with my epic title generator. Mm. And I ended up with a legend of misunderstood beauty. And I was like, Ooh. sounds like the history of humankind and people assigned mm-hmm. female since the dawn of time to now. Mm-hmm. So lots of books would fit with that. <laughs> but One thing I thought would be fun to connect that with would be biographies or fictionalized biographies about women who are famous or should be famous, but that we tend to kind of misunderstand or under-recognize or mischaracterize in, you know, our common history textbooks. And I was like, oh, there's so many of these. I thought of Mary Mary's Monster by Lita Judge, Mm -hmm. which is about Mary Shelley and her amazing life. I mean, she... She invented science fiction and did it on a dare, basically, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. And then I thought of the Firefly Letters, A Suffragette's Journey to Cuba, which is about a woman who immigrates from Sweden to Cuba. And she also is kind of accompanied around by a woman who is a slave. And then the wealthy daughter of the house that our Swedish immigrant Frederica is staying. So you have these three women from like wildly different backgrounds learning about like kind of slavery and feminism. And this was a woman who basically like wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin before Uncle Tom's Cabin. And people think of that as like the first, you know, abolition novel, but actually it was happening in Cuba before. So that one's really good. I thought of The Kingdom of Back by Marie Lu, which is about Nanerl Mozart, who I'm obsessed with and can never find books about. She was Mozart's older sister and thoroughly a genius as well. And many people suspect that some of his work came from her. He was also thoroughly a genius. Like there's there's definitely no way that it was all her. Like some of it was him, but oh, it's this really amazing book. It uses fantasy, but based on the kind of fantasy that Nanerl and Wolfgang came up together because, you know, they were siblings. And then my last choice for that is The Blossom and the Firefly by Sherry L. Smith. And that one is not based on a particular person, but definitely like a side of women that I did not know anything about. And it is about a girl who is basically like an attendant, I forget the actual word in Japanese, but to kamikaze pilots before they go off on their suicide missions. They wanted to make these young men feel, you know, honored because they were doing something noble for their country. So there would be these like beautiful young women who would, you know, wait on them at dinner and do their laundry and make sure their bedrooms were nice and just like kind of served as this like last human tie to the world. And it's so fascinating. And that's The Blossom and the Firefly by Sherry L. Smith. So I cheated. Those are four books, but they're all great. It's all good because my last one is short and sweet. And so as you were talking, I was like, thank goodness you're going to recommend books because my next one, I'm not recommending any books. And um, (laughs) 
<laughs> so my horror title would be <laughs> Nightmare in a Crowd. And as soon as that one came up, I was like, well, that's pretty much a pandemic novel. So, you know, we could just leave it at that because <laughs> talk about a nightmare. It's a crowd right now. I've just I've been I've been laughing about that since. So this was such a fun, ridiculous idea. And I hope listeners are getting some good book recommendations, but also are interested in trying this out for themselves because it's fun. And, um, you know, whether you're a writer or not, it's it's an opportunity to, like, play with your imagination and think about, like, what could this look like or what might that mean? Definitely. On that note, thank y'all for tuning in this week. As always, you can leave feedback on the show on Apple Podcasts that lets us know how we're doing and it helps other people find us. Thank you to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible and thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Instagram at Jensen in Hannah. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as shgmclicious and again on Instagram as bookishgirlfit. So I will be back with a special guest for next week's short HeyYA Extra Credit episode. And then the two of us, Hannah and I, will be back with you in two weeks. Bye. Happy reading. Happy reading.